This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry, Episode 25, Why Fight Spain? A swirl of emotions furnishes the background for a war with Spain in 1898. For many Americans, the perceived evils of Spanish colonialism in Cuba provoked an outburst of moral fervor in what Secretary of State John Hay would call a splendid little war. Vice President Theodore Roosevelt implicitly, if not explicitly, expressed the notion that war was good, clean fun and essential therapy. One might say, perhaps unkindly, that he had some of the character of an adolescent. Enthusiasm, energy, with a touch of brutality. Yet, he was a learned man, an avid writer and reader, with considerable charm. People liked him. He exercised magnetic attraction with a seismic personality. As one person said, you had to wring out your clothes after being in his presence. Roosevelt lent himself to caricature. The acerbic H.L. Mencken compared him to the German Kaiser William II. There was always the clank of the saber in his discourse. He could not discuss the tamest matter without swaggering in the best dragoon fashion. But the nation as a whole was imbued with a cheerful optimism and an abstract bloodthirstiness. The Civil War lay more comfortably remote in popular memory. Its horrors had faded. A dwindling number of aged veterans bored school kids with memories of the Monitor and Merrimack, or Gettysburg. With the Cubans in rebellion, the U.S. supported the rebels for humanitarian reasons. The press depicts the Spaniards as monsters, holding an empire in brutal captivity. The Spanish regime was indeed both cruel and incompetent, and as tensions rose in 1898, the American consul in Havana requested a warship to show the flag and, if needed, to rescue American citizens. The battleship Maine rode at anchor in Havana Harbor for a month until an explosion tore the ship apart. 254 men die. The nation is thrown into shock. Remember the Maine is the cry. People blame Spain despite the flimsy evidence. The explanation ignored logic. The fact that it would not have been to Spain's interest to provoke war with the U.S. The true cause was later found to have been internal combustion. A harsh but not unreasonable judgment would be that the U.S. was looking for a reason and went to war for an abstract concept of morality. In victory, 
using it to justify constructing an overseas colonial empire. The war was a direct violation of the Monroe Doctrine, which had declared that the U.S. would not interfere with existing European colonies in the Western Hemisphere. Spain had, of course, long before been edged out of power and influence by France and Britain, and had lost most of its empire. It was a safe enemy for America, not strong enough to pose any real danger, even though Boston bankers advised their clients to take the contents of their safe deposit boxes to Worcester, lest Spanish ships bombard Boston. Spain had a fleet in both the Atlantic and Pacific, but only of the second rank. It was not big enough to defend its far-flung possessions, not big enough to hope to defeat the new U.S. Navy, now boasting battleships as well as cruisers. Washington ordered Commodore George Dewey and his Pacific Squadron to sail from Hong Kong and strike. On May 1st, the Battle of Manila Bay took place, showing the potential global reach of American naval power, yet its vulnerability as well. Its ships had to be supplied at very long range. Operating in China seas, using Hong Kong dockyards for necessary services, it depended on British favor. In their Philippine colony, where they faced increasingly hostile subjects, Spanish morale was low. With inferior ships, they had little expectation of victory against the Americans, who would score a perfect victory. In the battle, not a single American was killed, and only eight were wounded. This was a totally clean, high-tech war. And yet, American gunnery was not as good as it ought to have been, and to call the Spanish ships a fleet was a gross exaggeration. Dewey soared from obscurity to instant hero. Americans much wanted a hero at that time, and the nation went wild. There was a Dewey cocktail, Dewey hats, Dewey Square in Boston, and even a candy, Chewy Deweys. And Dewey became a favorite name for boy babies. The Admiral even aspired to the White House. Here is an example of an ordinary man thrust into fame he couldn't handle, and he soon fades into obscurity. With the outbreak of war in the Caribbean, Spain sent a largely antiquated squadron across the Atlantic. It successfully evaded the U.S. Navy to hole up in Santiago, Cuba. The U.S. blockaded, and when the Spaniards sortied in July, destroyed them at the cost of one American killed. 
Spain lost several hundred as the obsolete Spanish ships with too many wooden fittings burned easily. Effectively, this brought the war to an end, but not in Pacific Asia. Taking the Philippines was vastly different from Manifest Destiny because it took the American flag from the American Constitution by sending one where the other could not go. Annexation offered no hope of ultimate statehood. After Dewey's victory, the question was, how much to take? Manila? Luzon? The entire archipelago, the size of Italy. What were the attractions? Economic? It offered attractive proximity to China and its potential market. How about local resources? The potentials were unknown, but possibly great. But, as is so often the case with colonization, ultimately, the costs proved greater than the profits. Was the attraction strategic? Manila Bay faced Asia. Could this be a naval station, an American Hong Kong, a base plus an entrepot, a springboard for commerce? The idea of annexation excited missionaries as providing a means to pave the way for God's work in China. Many Filipinos understandably objected to outside rule by anybody. The result was a protracted war with the United States for independence, a war in which a quarter of a million people would die. Like Vietnam, many decades later, the conflict roused strong feelings in the U.S. Many prominent people were anti-imperialists, including some in the government. But when McKinley temporizes about annexation, Roosevelt, although a fellow Republican and vice president, attacks him as having all the backbone of a chocolate eclair. The two men were polar opposites. McKinley was all self-control, moderation, stoicism, whereas Roosevelt embodied virility, passion, violence. In 1901, an assassin's bullet made him, at 41, the youngest man to have occupied the White House. As for the Philippines, McKinley had already annexed the archipelago. But we should remember that, unlike other imperial powers, from the start, the U.S. proposed and prepared the Philippines for independence. From the war, the U.S. gains a new oceanic empire, Puerto Rico, Guam, Hawaii, incidentally, as well as the Philippines. 1898 made the U.S. a new entity, an imperial republic. Woodrow Wilson would say, no war ever so transformed us. A Spanish war established an American military presence in the far Pacific and on the fringes of Asia. 
destroying the strategic isolation of the U.S. by creating a vulnerable salient. We can view it as an exposed outwork of the great American continental citadel, so remote as to be impossible to defend. Even T.R. came to admit that it was a strategic Achilles heel, fateful for America and the world. Like the Japanese shortly thereafter on the Asian continent, here lay another case of strategic overstretch. T.R., the naval enthusiast, at the end of his administration, had the U.S. battleship fleet, dubbed the Great White Fleet, sail around the world from 1907 to 1909. This was a navy with its emphasis on large units built to win battles, not to protect trade networks. The route of the fleet was from Hampton Roads via the Magellan Straits through the Suez Canal and home, with stops in Japan, Australia, and many other ports on the way. Sixteen of eighteen American battleships all new since the war with Spain, gleaming in their white paint, proudly showed the flag, and it was proclaimed an act of goodwill. Roosevelt would say, In my judgment, the most important service that I rendered in peace was the voyage of the battle fleet round the world. This served as a training exercise for a fleet without much experience. Although unstated, the voyage was intended to signify readiness to fight the Japanese. Tensions with Japan were then riding high over immigration issues, undergirded by fear of the Japanese after their victory over the Russians. For some, Japan had become the new Yellow Peril. Some even saw Japanese immigrants as the vanguard of an invading army. Immigration discriminated against them and the Chinese as well, the argument being that Asians were so different that they could never become part of American culture. But the voyage was seemingly a great success from a public relations point of view. Warmth, even enthusiasm, greeted the fleet everywhere. This was a great statement of coming of age for the USN 
and for America as a great power. But it could not have been accomplished without the aid of Britain and its global network of coaling stations. The U.S. had none. In those days before the Panama Canal, the Navy could not even transfer its fleet from the East Coast to the West without worrying about coal supplies on the way. The U.S. had only limited supplies of coal on the West Coast and only one dockyard there, Bremerton. Hence, we could not even defend the West Coast, let alone Hawaii or the Philippines. The cruise demonstrated the vast distances of the Pacific. The Philippines are 6,000 miles from San Francisco, only 3,000 from Tokyo. The Navy had only nine colliers, that is, designated coal carriers. It chartered 51 and had to buy coal at six foreign ports, all British. Oil would change this, and it was just coming on stream as fuel for ships. And unlike other oceanic powers, Britain, France, Germany, or Japan, the U.S. was a major oil-exporting nation. This gave huge strategic advantage for Americans and liability for others. After 1911, the USN uses oil as fuel for all new ships and begins to convert its older coal burners. Thus, by 1925, all American battleships had enough fuel endurance to traverse the Pacific from San Francisco to Manila without refueling. This becomes part of the war plans. Thus, in the new century, the U.S. Navy becomes truly blue water, and with the Panama Canal opening in 1914, a two-ocean fleet. But the U.S. would soon face a challenge, both in the Atlantic and the Pacific, far greater than anything Spain had posed. America now had global recognition of its rise to global power, personified by Theodore Roosevelt when he received the Nobel Peace Prize as intermediary for the Portsmouth Peace Conference between Russia and Japan in 1905. America's rise coincided with North Atlantic global preeminence. This is where our next journey will take us in episode 26, North Atlantic Supremacy. Revolution at Sea is written and spoken by John Curtis Perry, with additional voicing by Jamie Rosenberg, recording by 1623 Studios in Gloucester, Massachusetts, production and distribution by Albert Buichadé-Ferré. Goodbye until next time. <laughs>